Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific show for you here. We are jam-packed for you on a Monday, including that proposed federal truck tax. Did you hear about this one now? This is a recommendation from the federal government's net zero advisory body. Now, this is a group that gives the government advice on how to fight climate change. In their last report, a truck tax proposed $1,000. That would be the tax on a Ford F-150, a Toyota Tacoma, Chevrolet Silverado, and a Ram 1500. If you buy an even bigger truck than that, you would get with, you would get hit with an even bigger tax. Now the federal government telling truck owners, don't worry. This is just a recommendation. We're not doing it. Chill out. We're not going to tr tax your truck. A lot of truckers, though, not reassured by that. Opposition conservatives going wild about this in Ottawa right now. And I will talk to the Ottawa reporter who broke that story the other day. So that's coming up a little later this hour. We got lots more on the show today. And we start, though, with the new recommendations on food guidelines in BC schools. Now, a lot of parents taking a close look at these proposed guidelines for BC public schools, they would advise against unhealthy food like pizza and hot dogs. What about pizza day in school? Could that be at risk? I remember when my kids were smaller, they loved pizza day. So did we, because we didn't have to make lunch for them that day. We talked about this on the show earlier. I spoke to parent advocate Cindy Daglish about it, and she has concerns about it. She thinks this is going too far. Here's what she had to say to me. That is what pack hot lunches and the cookie sales and the freezy days. That's what they're about. They're about building community and celebrating our, our schools. Kind of going to that traditional way of thinking is you, you come together when you've got food in front of you, right? It's it's a healthy discourse to have once in a while. Okay, so she's a bit worried about bake sales that could be off limits for fundraising for PACs, school hot lunch programs. Yeah, maybe that could be a problem with these new school food guidelines. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Blair King. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Blair is a registered professional biologist, very, very active on social media. I, I uh, encourage you to follow him on Twitter. Hey, Blair. Hello. Blair, thanks a lot for coming on. I know you're involved in your pack at your kid's school, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm the president of our, pa our school pack. Oh, good for you, man. So you were taking a, a close look at these school guidelines, right, for food. How did you guys find out about these guidelines? Essentially, one of the uh, the one of the parents brought it to our attention. It's this is in the process of consultation, and they have a their online consultation process that's setting us up so that we can those individuals, PACs, etc., that are involved in serving schools can get can provide feedback. Right. Well, okay. So tell me about these guidelines. What is being proposed here? 
basically the proposal is going for in 2013 they set up a, a set of guidelines that were they say were part of a broader choice uh, approach to promote healthy choices both in in and out of the classroom and they've decided that healthy choices weren't wasn't a good enough idea and in instead they're now going with a an approach that basically says let's get rid of choice let's get rid of parental input and we'll basically eliminate access to most of these foods that the the creator of the guidelines feel are unhealthy or un, uh, and don't promote a healthy lifestyle. Okay, so what are some of the foods on the hit list here that would be they would advise you to uh, schools to avoid? Well, everything from uh, they have a specific section that says basically any baked good you uh, a parent may choose to bring to school is not allowed. You can't bring cakes, uh, cupcakes. You can't bring cinnamon buns. You can't bring granola bars. You can't bring energy bars. You can't bring pro- protein bars. Uh, you can't give them gummy bears. You can't give them any form of candy or sweet that you might serve as a treat. Uh, freezies, popsicles, they're gone. Uh, if you're at a track meet and you want uh, an ele- a Gatorade or some other uh, electrolyte replacement drink, nope, you're allowed to bring milk. Uh, it's just the... It, the it, it's a set of guidelines that allows for no flexibility and doesn't recognize one parental choice and two doesn't recognize that we have to teach kids good decisions and we have to accept that moderation that we live that you learn about moderation you learn some good some bad and get and allow us to make decisions for our own kids. Okay, I'm taking a look at some of the foods that are being recommended under these draft guidelines, and they include fruit and vegetables, whole grain, bread products, and pasta. And they say if you were going to do a pasta, it should be a whole grain pasta, uh, plain yogurt, unsalted nuts, and of course, tofu. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, for kids who, who go into school and get a hot lunch program on occasion, I remember when my kids were smaller, they had a, a pizza day i think it was like once a month and they love pizza day and so did we because it took a little gave the parents a little bit of a break from making lunch that day right would pizza be allowed or no absolutely not it's got uh, it's got any combination of it. it's got processed soft cheeses it's got most of them have uh deli meats which are uh, are not allowed they probably have full full fat cheeses which aren't allowed and they absolutely have processed uh uh, the the durum pasta that uh, the durum uh, any of the uh, the crust will not be allowed either. So basically, that the any of the hot lunch choices you may have had in the past would be gone. Uh, the setup essentially assumes that every school has huge kitchens that allows for the packs to prepare complex meals from raw materials and then pass them out to the school. They don't. It doesn't acknowledge the layout of your typical school or frankly the fact that a hot lunch as you say is is not every day it's not twice a week it's once a month yeah yeah it's occasionally right speaking of blair king he's a parent advocate we're talking about the food proposed food guidelines in bc public schools let me play another clip here for you from cindy daglish who's another parent advocate i spoke to earlier about this and she says look you know, we, we understand, like, you know, you're not going to feed your kid hot dogs every single day, but come on, like, everything in moderation. Here's what she had to say about it. Everything in moderation. Uh, yeah. What happened to the whole healthy eating habit? There's healthy food and then there's habits. If I look at those food guidelines, my kids would not be getting the calories that they need 
in order to thrive and grow. Blair King, your thoughts? Well, I agree. And it's funny because if you read their guidelines, one of the things they The words they don't include in the guidelines are choice, choose, parental, moderation. Those don't don't appear. The word flexible is used once, and it's used in in sort of a format that doesn't actually mean what we would want it to mean. It's all about no, no choice, no decisions, no parental input, and no variety. Uh, Children are children. We call them treats because we give them as treats. They aren't your main course what? you get you we aim to try and teach our kids to make good choices and yeah. right now we're creating a situation where there is no choice what about keeping our kids healthy and making sure they are eating a healthy balanced diet we've all heard about childhood obesity on the rise and some of the chronic diseases that can arise from a poor poor diet choice well we the want, first we thing want, is that go ahead yeah the first thing is every food program is optional. So parents have to actively opt in to giving kids these foods. And as you say, you you will eat, if you're feeding a, a child a meal, you give them a good solid meal and then sometimes they get dessert. The the theory here is that the there is no variety, there is no option to give them dessert. There is no option to give them any of the other features and a balanced diet is about balance there's good and there's bad there's yeah. we don't uh, we don't insist on always doing everything strictly you you make moderation you make choices okay, okay so blair as the head of the pack at your your child school what would be your recommendation to government now on these proposed guidelines I would suggest they revamp them. They go back and they look at what they had in 2013, which they said was about flexibility, about giving choices and options, and recognizing that a, a fun, they specifically say a fun fair, an, action, an activity that happens once a year, cannot have fun foods. You can't have a barbecue on your, uh, your city fun fair. In 2013, they said, you know what? Once a year is okay to have a fun fair and you can, and you can have a barbecue. Ultimately, it comes down to going back to what we had in 2013, which was a flexibility, flexibility of choice and allowing parents and educators to make to use their brains, use their abilities and make good decisions for how they want to raise their kids. Blair, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks for having me. You bet. Blair King there. He's the president of the pack at his child school talking about these proposed recommended guidelines for food in BC public schools. So two categories here, foods that schools would be encouraged to offer, serve or sell. And that would include healthy choices like more fruit and vegetables. And then there's a separate category, foods to avoid, avoid. So on the hit list here, cookies, cake, ice cream, uh, chicken nuggets, French fries, pizza, hot dogs, popsicles, sugary drinks, cookies, chocolate, hot chocolate, no hot chocolate, chips. Phone me on this one now, okay? Phone me and tell me what you think about these proposed guidelines. I'm hearing from some members who are people who are involved in their child's pack and they raise money at barbecues and bake sales and stuff. They're worried about this. 604-280-9898. Tell me if you're on board with this or if you think it goes too far. 604 280 9898 star 9898 in your cell. This is Mike Smith back with your calls.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the proposed truck tax that is all the talk of Ottawa right now. This proposed tax contained in a recommendation document to government. Uh, The government right now bending over backwards to say, chill out, we're not going to do this. Uh, But it's right there in this advisory document to government. It proposes a tax on light duty trucks, a thousand dollars for a Ford F-150, a, a Toyota Tacoma, Chevrolet Silverado, a Ram 1500. That would be a thousand dollar truck, a, a tax. If you have a heavy duty truck, a bigger truck, you would have to pay a bigger tax. The government saying this is just a recommendation. It is not policy. We're not doing it, but. Still a lot of fears the government could be heading in this direction. Have a listen to this. This is the Premier of Saskatchewan here, Scott Moe, in the Saskatchewan legislature the other day. Most certainly rural folks in this province, myself included, don't need a tax on our truck. Saskatchewan trucks do not need a tax. Okay, yeah, so the Saskatchewan Premier is saying you better back off. Don't even be thinking about taxing our trucks here in Saskatchewan. Let's check in with the reporter who broke this story now, Tom Korski, managing editor of Blacklock's Reporter in Ottawa. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, Tom, where did this come from? How did you break this? Three reports in uh, the last four months have spoken with approval about this tax proposal. The most recent was from the Department of Environment, which reported with approval a recommendation, as you mentioned, from its zero advisory panel. But that wasn't where it first came up. It first comes up in a group called the Green Budget Coalition before Christmas that suggested a $1,000 to $4,000 tax on inefficient internal combustion engines. Well, they just described 85% of road vehicles. Who's the former director of the Green Budget Coalition? Well, his name is the Minister of the Environment, Steve Gibo. Oh, yes, yes. Stephen Gilbo, the federal uh, environment minister now, who is now saying, we're not doing this, right? You guys should chill out. We're not doing this. We're not going to bring in this tax, correct? That's what he's saying right now? Well, so he says on Twitter, we would like to see, if he's that committed to it, the minister stand up in the House of Commons on his own two legs and, and, and put that on the record for Hansard. Because I don't think a denial on Twitter does it. Three times in four months, The feds have said, we have a problem in our scheme to electrify the national road transportation system, and we need money, and we think the answer is a tax on pretty much every passenger car or pickup truck that burns gas or diesel. Let's talk a little bit in more detail about how this tax would work. So, like right now, isn't there a tax already on an SUV? Well, yeah, but almost no one pays it. Okay. There was way back in 2007, they introduced the parliament in the day called it a green lobby. It was basically a tax, but it was only on the heaviest, most inefficient vehicles with exemptions for most mother and father passenger cars and pickups. So literally it applies to a Lamborghini. You know, it, there are millions of Canadians who have never paid a green levy because it applied to a very narrow range of vehicles. This would apply to everybody. Why would they do this, Mike? Well, they, they answer that question themselves because the electric car boom isn't working. Outside of B.C. and Quebec, which where you know famously you have your own generous 
provincial rebate plans on top of the 5000 from the feds, it's not working. Electric sales are about 5% of new vehicle sales. They are nowhere near to net zero on road transportation. Yeah, and the Trudeau Liberals have... They want to transition to, what, 100% electric vehicles by what year? Twenty Is it 2035? They're talking about 2030, and where you start to get a very dramatic reduction leading into 2040, which is they will apparently banish the sale of the internal combustion engine. Right. Problem. Right. Anyone who buys a vehicle knows this. The, the, the price gap between a regular vehicle and a Tesla is fifty to $25,000. Yeah, yeah. So if you can't afford another 20 cents a liter on gas, you're not going to pony up another 15K for a Tesla. Speaking of Tom Korski from Blacklock's reporter in Ottawa, he's the reporter who broke this story here about this uh, proposed truck tax and some of these government documents. Uh, Tom, let's talk a little bit more about how this tax would work. So in one of the documents, it talks about expanding this green levy or a truck tax to light-duty pickups. Like, these are some of the most popular vehicles for sale in, in all of the country, right? So a Ford F-150 pickup, a Toyota Tacoma, a Chevrolet Silverado, a Ram 1500. These are light-duty pickups, the most popular vehicles in the country. How would this tax be applied? Would it be an annual tax or would it be a one-time tax? or One time like the GST, right on the sticker. And then what would they do with the proceeds? Well, the scheme is we would then apply that to offer more rebates for electric car buyers. Right, Their right. problem is, as generous as the federal rebates are now, $5,000 when you at point of purchase, it's not enough to bridge the gap for uh, middle-income drivers. And they show from in-house research, we report today, even the Department of Natural Resources polls car buyers. They say, we're not interested. Do you have to get price parity? On, uh, between the F-150 and even if I could buy an electric pickup. So th- there's a serious problem. You say, well, why don't they just offer more rebates? Do you know how much they've paid Tesla Corporation? The richest man on earth has collected $118 million in federal subsidies to date under this program. That's wow. a fact. Wow. Meanwhile, if you take a look uh, further down the list of how this tax would be applied if the government were to, to adopt it, if you buy a bigger truck, right, like a heavy-duty truck, the tax would be higher. So a Ram 3500, how much would the one-time tax be on that vehicle? Well, the scale goes up to $4,000 at point of purchase. Right, 4000 bucks at the, at the point of purchase. Now, you mentioned that this has been sketched out or it's been kicked around in several government documents, not just one, right? Like, what do you read into that? When you have the environment minister saying, like, people should stop talking about this. We're not doing it. It's just a recommendation. It's not government policy. If they're not doing it, how come it keeps coming up over and over in these documents? Isn't that the point? Isn't that exactly the point? Because it's easy to say no. (laughs) They, They could have said no last year when this first came up from the Green Budget Coalition that Steve Gibo used to run. But they didn't say no. And the reason this keeps coming up is because the, uh, the advocates for the electric car industry are trying to solve a problem. They're not meeting their sales targets. And that means the feds are not meeting their emissions targets on transportation. They're not even close. But they know the money has to come from somewhere. Either the money comes from somewhere or, or all we've done is create the most expensive possible cash transfer to people who were going to buy Teslas anyway, and now the single mom driving to the Walmart in the jalopy gets to pay for it. 
It doesn't make any sense. I get kind of deja vu on this story a little bit because it reminds me of the recent uh, speculation about whether the federal liberals would be looking at a, a home equity tax. And, you know, it's another one where the Trudeau government keeps saying, oh, we're not doing it. Stop, stop accusing us of looking at this. Well, it's in, it's in your own documents. Like it's in some of your own budget papers and recommendations. A home equity tax has been on the table. So, I mean, this is why it keeps getting brought being brought up is that it's being studied, it's being looked at, it's being recommended. Do you think sometimes that the way that politics works in Ottawa is some of these tax policies get floated as a trial balloon in, in some of these Absolutely. recommendations? Yeah, and then they measure public reaction to it? Absolutely, and that's why they call them trial balloons. You said it, Mike. But you know, there's a reason every parliament and every cabinet since 2007 hasn't touched this, because they wanted to get reelected. And now they know. If Steve Gibo forgot that or, or cabinet got a little confused on the point, now they know. They can see the blowback from people. You say, you're coming after when I go to buy a modestly priced minivan. You're telling me I have to pay a climate change tax or buy a $56,000 Tesla. Are you kidding me? I will see you at the polling station. That's where they stand. Yeah, where does this go now? Go go to now. I mean, the budget's already been put in front of the house. It's, you know, this tax is not in this year's budget. Where does the story go from now? Is it just like a dead duck or do you think it's still they continue to talk about it? I think there would be legislators who would like to get Gibo on the record and like I say not on Twitter. But that really matters. Like you really want to get that on the record. You, you, everyone would like the Minister of the Environment to just stand up in, in the House of Commons and tell the nation, while, while the stenographers are taking notes, exactly what his idea is in terms of bridging the gap on electrification of the, of the motor vehicle fleet in our country and how he feels about taxing pickups. And that's what happened with home equity tax, Mike. They, no less than the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance had to stand up in the House of Commons and say, never, with a withering hand in a thousand years, we will never tax home equity. That's the only thing that will stop it. Right. And as for the government's plan to transition to electric vehicles and, and phase out gas-powered vehicles in Canada, it has been pointed out, Trudeau was here the other week in British Columbia talking about this issue. Where is all this power supposed to come from? And, and where is the infrastructure and the charging stations to charge up all these vehicles? And where is all the electricity supposed to come from? I mean, we've got an uproar in this province over one single hydroelectric dam, the Site C Dam. You'd probably need like 20 of those dams to generate enough electricity to power all the electric vehicles that they want to put on the road. Your thoughts? Yeah, point, point taken. And 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 then you start to question the arithmetic. We have to be candid. Even if they use you know nuclear power in the east, uh, as you mentioned, hydro in the west. Even if you go ahead with that, there's subsidies for rebates to electric car buyers and subsidies to put in the fast charging stations by their schedule to 2025 is over three billion dollars. Three billion with a B. And their sales are 5%. 95% of car sales in Canada, no one is looking at electrics because they can't, mother and father can't afford it. The math just isn't there, Mike. It doesn't add up. Tom, thanks for coming on today to talk about this one. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign for a university and college tuition freeze now. BC post-secondary students, just like everybody else, feeling the pinch of inflation for food, for housing. Lots of students saying they're having trouble finding an affordable, decent place to live while going to school. On last week's show, you may have heard my interview with Daniel Drury, He's a UVic student. He became so discouraged about trying to find a place to rent. He just, he just gave up. He bought an old Ford Econoline van and he lives in that. He lives in the van on campus. He pays $75 a month for daytime parking. At night, he drives off campus, looks for a place to park his van and go to sleep. Then he comes back in the morning, takes a shower at the campus rec center. That's his life. And he told me he's not alone. He said some other students are doing the same thing. Now BC students calling for government help. They want a tuition freeze, at least for a temporary period. So far, no sign the government is willing to do that. Let's discuss now with my guest, Evan Stefanak. Evan is a master's student at UVic. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Evan, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. What, how much is your tuition at UVic these days? So graduate tuition at UVic for domestic students is a little bit more than $2,000 per semester. Um, and that gets taken right out of our graduate stipend. And for international students, it's um, over four times that per semester. Yeah. How do you, so what do you want to see? So you want to, why do you want a tuition freeze? So we think that tuition freeze is a realistic um, thing that the government can implement. Um, and we think um, now is the ideal time for that coming off of the pandemic when there was a tuition freeze. Um, now they're looking at increasing tuition going forward. And this is the time that we need to um, really rally um, and talk to the government and hope for a tuition freeze for graduate students and undergrad students um, in BC. Yeah, right now, as I understand it, the government has a cap on tuition fee increases, it's capped at 2%. So that would be the maximum increase in tuition, a 2% increase. That's not, that's not very much, right? Especially, you know, that's less than, less than half of what the inflation rate is. Yeah, but that does build up over years, um, which is what has happened in the past. That's went up every year and every year, and now tuition is multiple times what it was um, a, a while ago. And so we, we're looking for that tuition to be capped where it currently is and currently frozen at its current um, current amount right and you mentioned we have had tuition freezes in bc in the past was there a tuition freeze earlier in the pandemic did you say so i'm actually not um crystal clear on that i believe there was for at least one year um so yeah i i do recall there was a tuition freeze in the in the late 90s at one point under an ndp government at that time why do you think that would help like what are you hearing from other students who are involved in this campaign, why do they think this is, should be required? 
so we think that this is one of the um, main things that the universities can do to help with student budgets. As you mentioned, like earlier, the price of everything else is going up by so much. Yeah. Um, and like gas, food, um, especially places to stay um, in Victoria, especially housing and in Vancouver, obviously housing is through the roof at the moment. Um, you also, I heard your story about a student who is living in a van on campus. Yeah. Um, one thing UVic is planning for next year is to eliminate their annual parking pass. And that'll result in parking fees going up by over 50% um, oh. on a monthly basis for students. Um, it's their attempt to, um, yeah, reduce. Have you, have you heard? Of, have you have you heard about any kids living in in their cars? Yeah, we have. We we hear stories about that. Yes, and that's something that obviously we don't want anyone living in a car um, yeah. on campus or anywhere in Victoria. Right? Everyone should be able to afford at least basic rent. Um, and although the university can't really control rent, they can obviously control tuition. Um, and that's what we're fighting for here. Right. Speaking to Evan Stefanak, he's a student at the University of Victoria. He's part of the campaign for a tuition freeze at BC colleges and universities. Evan, what would you say to the people who are listening right now saying, well, hang on a second, the cost of a college or university education in British Columbia is already subsidized by government and by taxpayers and it's a great deal like yes a lot of kids do have to go and get a student loan in order to pay for their tuition their books their uh, their rent but look what you get on the other end when you get that degree you are typically coming out with a much better paying job so it's worth it in the end what do you say to that to some extent yes but as as tuition gets more and more expensive that becomes less and less of the case um we also see I'm sorry, I'm just looking through my notes here. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, let me, let me ask you this. Like, for a lot of people who went through university, I remember when I when I was in university, it was difficult for me, too. I, I had to go get a student loan. It took me years to pay the loan back. But I did have a part-time job that I worked two or three days a week to help get through. And it did pay off in the end. Like, I was able to pay pay those student loans off eventually and the degree I earned did pay off with with my career later so yeah you know, but- so what do you say like if someone were to say to you hang on a second Evan like if, if you're just going to say well no you don't have to pay any more increases in tuition like isn't it at some point reality that a, a student should be required to at least pay for part of the cost of their education Yes, we believe at the moment students are paying for a lot of their education. And for some students, they're almost paying too much of their education. Um, We're not reasonably expecting tuition fees to go down, although we would love that to happen. Um, But we think a realistic um, implementation would be a a freeze of tuition fees. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you and a lot of your fellow students, there have been some rallies. There have been some demonstrations. There was a demonstration out in front of the uh, Minister of Advanced Education's office the other day. Yes, on Thursday. Yeah, what is your message to government here? If the minister was listening right now, what do you want to say to her? So we want to say to her, first and foremost, that we need tuition to be frozen across um, across, across BC for especially graduate students and also for undergraduate students um, in order to help reduce um, the budget constraints on, on students in BC. Yeah. Okay, Evan, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
All right, let's talk about the costs of mobility services in Canada now. Canadians pay a lot for their cell phone plans, and there have long been calls in Canada for more competition among wireless providers to increase choice for consumers. A key ruling on this now, disappointing for advocates seeking increased consumer choice and better prices. Let's discuss now. Uh, with my guest, Matt Hatfield. He is the Open Media Campaign Director, Digital Rights Advocate. Matt, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Matt, I think a lot of people feel the pinch on those cell phone costs every month when they pay their mobility bills and their cell phone bills. How does Canada compare overall to other countries in terms of the cost for cell providers? So it depends a little bit on the year and a little bit on how you count it. But in general, Canada is either the most expensive in the world or one of the most expensive in the top three or five uh, for costs each year. Yeah, I'm sure that won't surprise a lot of people. Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. uh, But one of the leading reasons uh, is that we just don't have enough competition in our country. Um, Most people are stuck with one of the big three cell phone providers, either Bell, Telus, or Rogers. And uh, the Competition Bureau has said in print that they see evidence that there's sort of a, a monopoly-type collecting of, of uh, people just don't have enough places to go to get a different deal than, than what they get from the big three. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know p- often the big companies will say, well, you got to take a look at the geography of this country. This is like a, a huge country with... Uh, with a population that's scattered around and, and it's difficult to have those the cell phone infrastructure, right? Is that, is that normally the explanation for the high cost? It's one of the big ones they'll give. Um, yeah. And it's true, that's why our rural access isn't that good. But if you yeah. actually look at where people are in Canada, we're almost all, all in a quite a narrow strip of land, uh, you know, north of the U.S. border. So we're not actually that big a country for, for the size of that cell phone network. Yeah. When people travel outside of Canada, like I've done some traveling outside of the country and I'm sometimes surprised at the cost to buy like a cell phone card in another country. It just seems like it's a lot cheaper. Like if you go to, let's say Europe, is it typically cheaper there in Canada? Much, much cheaper. Uh, And of course, Europe is a very densely populated place, but many people find it's actually cheaper to buy a roaming plan elsewhere and bring it back to Canada and roam from a different country than it is to buy service here, which is pretty crazy. How How about the United States? How do we compare to the U.S.? The United States also has some competition problems, but their prices are significantly lower than ours. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Matt, uh, Matt Hatfield from Open Media. Hey, Matt, so let's talk about this CRTC ruling and the government decision on it last week. Can you sum up what the, the importance of this ruling? Yeah. So, I mean, this is essentially committing to the existing system we have. Um, they are locking out uh, what's called MVNOs, mobile virtual network operators, from entering our, uh, our market in most circumstances. And what an MVNO does is they're sort of a low-cost alternate cell phone provider that buys access to our physical infrastructure uh, and then sells services uh, to Canadians using that infrastructure. A lot of other countries have MVNOs, and they tend to increase competition and uh, drive down prices and provide more sort of diversity of services where, because there's more of them, they really have to work to, to earn your, your subscription. They can't just assume you'll have to go with them. Right, yeah, so an MVNO, that's a mobile virtual network operator. So that is a, what a provider that doesn't have their own network. They've got to rent space on a network. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, we, we do this already in the uh, wholesale, like the wired internet market. Um, there's a system that, that gives providers access there. Um, but unfortunately, we're denying it in most circumstances on, on wireless. Um, the government has decided that the way they want 
infrastructure to be built out in Canada is they want companies like Shaw or like Videotron to really commit to building out this uh, expensive kind of duplicative physical infrastructure themselves. Um, so you only really get increased competition within a small area around where they're able to build out that infrastructure. Um, you don't get the kind of the system-wide drive down in costs uh, that would be more helpful to most people in Canada. Right. Okay. So if there was a, let's say a small mobility provider in Canada wanted to do a startup in Canada, would, would that be like impossible or just very difficult? It's essentially impossible right now. So people might know that uh, Ryan Reynolds, a really famous Canadian, runs Mint Mobile, which is a successful MVNO um, in the U.S. Uh, and unfortunately, he can't operate here. He can't bring his business here um, because in order to get access to networks, um, if I'm a big company uh, who owns network, uh, there's no incentive whatsoever for me to offer fair access to that network to these kind of companies. They're just uh, supporting their own competition. So um, they're unwilling to sell access at, at anything uh, really even comparable to what consumers pay. Often they'll offer a rate even higher than what consumers pay. And of course, uh, there's there's no business model to that. Yeah. Speaking to Open Media Campaign Director Matt Hatfield about mobility pricing here in, in Canada. So Matt, you guys have been campaigning for a long time for a more competitive marketplace, more consumer choice. What, what exactly would you like to see happen in Canada? Yeah, so we think it's really important to do everything we can to create competition. I mean, of course, it needs to be done in circumstances that also will continue to support building out infrastructure. Um, but there, there are ways of balancing both. And the CRTC uh, on wired internet has attempted to create a system that uh, does that. We think they need to be doing the same on wireless. Um, and unfortunately, the current CRTC chair, Ian Scott, uh, you know, was a, a Telus executive himself at a certain point and has just really taken the perspective of the big three on issue after issue. So we're hoping that this year a new CRTC chair will be appointed. And we're really calling on our government to appoint someone who will put the affordability uh, of wireless services for Canadians first, because it's just unacceptable. Um, as we know, during the pandemic, you know, many of us have been leaning on our, our cell and internet plans more than ever. Yeah. Uh, and you just need decent service to function in our economy. And it's, it's really cruel to uh, deny so many people the plans that they need based off, off these world-leading costs. Yeah, it's a hot political issue, too. I, me- I remember the NDP in a recent election campaign talked about promising some sort of a cap on cell phone costs. The Conservatives yeah. had promised to increase international competition. Where are, the, where are the Trudeau Liberals on this? Have they made any kind of promise to bring lower costs to Canadians? Yeah, they've largely abandoned an overall systemic plan. Uh, So in 2019, they made a very uh, sort of low bar that they were going to ask, voluntarily ask the big three to drop their prices for certain plans by about 25% over two years. Um, And they recently declared victory on that, said, hey, great, we got a 25% reduction. Well, if you look at global wireless prices, they've gone down, you know, by that or more. So, you know, they didn't really accomplish anything. Um, We're still... Uh, very far behind uh, where we should be compared to the rest of the world in terms of our prices. And really, we, the NDP and Conservatives have it right. We need to be looking at global comparators and demanding that Canada get closer to other countries, not just that we uh, stay the same or even fall further behind. Yeah, Which would be a good country to emulate, in your opinion? I mean, Australia is an example that people often point to, um, where they also have a very large country with a distributed population, and yet they also have much lower rates, uh, and they've done that by encouraging competition, by bringing in more smaller companies. Hmm. Interesting. Matt, thanks for coming on to talk about this today. It's my pleasure.